Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. My body, my choice. This is the famous slogan coined as a feminist struggle for reproductive rights, setting the tone of this podcast addressing women and girls' sexual reproductive health and rights, known under the widely used acronym SIHR. My Body, My Choice stands for the main claims at the core of second wave feminism, which marked the 1960s and 70s, inspired by one of the most visionary and eye-opening books, speaking of the second sex by the French philosopher Simone de Beauvoir, who identifies the two core conditions for women's emancipation. And that is on the one hand, women's equal access to labor, and on the other, women's full control over their own bodies. In fact, women's power to control her own body is linked to how much control she has in other spheres of life. But how many women and girls can freely make that claim? Millions of people are denied the right to say no to sex, or yes to the choice of a partner in marriage, or the right uh, moment to have a child. Many are denied the right because of race, because of sex, sexual orientation, age, or disability. Their bodies do not always belong to them. Depriving women and girls of bodily autonomy is wrong. It causes and reinforces inequalities and violence, all of which arise from gender discrimination. By contrast, when women and girls can make the most fundamental choices about their bodies, they do not only gain in terms of autonomy, but also through advances in health, education, income and safety. These adapt to a world of greater justice and human well-being, which benefit us all. In 2019, at the Nairobi summit marking the 25th anniversary of the landmark International Conference on Population and Development, known as ICPD, nations, civil society, development institutions and others called for the protection of the right to bodily autonomy and integrity, building on international commitments in line with the UN's 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development Goals. Further momentum has come this year from the Generation Equality Forum, which culminated at the beginning of July in Paris and which builds on the singular achievements of the 1995 Fourth World Conference on Women to Reach Gender Equality by 2030, living up to the promise of a truly gender-just society. In this context, it also lies in the hands of the European Union to demonstrate leadership in highlighting why bodily autonomy is a universal right that must be upheld through its leadership within the Generation Equality Forum, but also as part of, of its own legislative framework, its recovery policy by making SIHR a precondition for universal access to health, namely in connection to its eu for health program, for instance, by allowing no concession on this fundamental right and by making it a cornerstone of its external action as well, following the example of Sweden or Spain through the adoption of a feminist foreign policy approach. Recent developments across the European Union namely reveal how serious many of the shortfalls in bodily autonomy are. Many have worsened under the pressure of COVID-19 pandemic. Right now, for instance, record numbers of women and girls are at risk of gender-based violence and harmful practices, seeing their rights regressing dramatically. At FEBS, we stand with women and girls claiming their rights and choices throughout their lives. Therefore, we could not do otherwise than dedicate this podcast to such an important subject in light of current developments, showing once more that women's rights are never granted, but must constantly be fought for. And that is precisely why we are so delighted to welcome a very special guest in this podcast. And that is Neil Data, Secretary and Founder of the EPF, the European Parliamentary Forum for Sexual and Reproductive Rights. Thank you for joining us, Neil. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
So to start this podcast with, I would like to ask you, first of all, a little bit more about yourself and the organization that you represent today. As the secretary of the EPF, you namely have been very active in the promotion of sexual and reproductive rights across Europe and beyond. Therefore, could you tell our listeners a bit more about your work, your organization's main missions and the areas that you cover? Well, thank you. First of all, uh, thank you for having me here with you. It's a pleasure to be here on this podcast. Um, about EPF, European Parliamentary Forum for Sexual Reproductive Rights, two main key features to keep in mind. First is that we are a parliamentary network. And second is that we are focused on sexual and reproductive health and rights. So we are an organization for and by parliamentarians who want to improve human rights in the areas of sexuality and reproduction. We should remember that sexual and reproductive health and rights is both a major health issue affecting every individual at several points in their lives. I mean, if, when, and how to found a family and with whom, etc. And then also, increasingly, it's become a hot-button issue in a number of different countries, including within the EU, where it has been politicized. And when something like this has been politicized, it therefore requires a political reaction by members of parliament. Overall, we have 30 all-party parliamentary groups as our members across geographic Europe. And we work with a range of different national partners as well, who are all experts in sexual reproductive health and rights. And in terms of structure, we have an executive committee composed of 11 parliamentarians from across the political spectrum. And our current chair is Petra Bayer, who is an Austrian member of parliament from the Socialist Party. And she's also a chair of the Equality Committee of the um, uh, Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. So as I said, we work on a nonpartisan basis with MPs from all democratic parties. And we do this with uh, three objectives in mind. One is to improve policies uh, related to sexual and reproductive health and rights, uh, both here in Europe and uh, what Europe does externally in the global south. Secondly, we want to improve funding for sexual reproductive health and rights. In many cases, it's an issue that is very much underfunded. And then also thirdly, we want to hold governments accountable for the promises that they've made so that governments have made promises to improve women's health or development aid or sexual reproductive health and rights in many different forms. These, for, these promises are not always kept up. So it's the role of parliamentarians to make sure that there's proper scrutiny on what government does. In terms of the work that we do, uh, we do several types of activities geared for parliamentarians. Perhaps we're best known for the activities that we do, such as workshops, conferences, and study tours. Those hopefully will resume back to normal relatively soon. A second area of work that we do is legislative support, where we provide technical expertise to parliamentarians who want to advance a certain area of sexual reproductive health and rights. And we also act as a liaison between those members of parliament and then experts in the field, such as United Nations, WHO, academia, or activists and civil society actors. And then also we do a great deal of in-house research. The type of research we specialize in is transnational comparisons. So that, for example, we conducted an atlas on access to contraception and also cervical prevention policies around Europe. And in that case, we take a look at 46 countries in the European region, take a look at how the governments perform in, for example, access to contraception or cervical cancer prevention policies. And then we gave them a grade. Each grade corresponds to a color, for example, from green to red. And then like this, parliamentarians and, and everyone can visually see how their country is performing in comparison to others. 
And in this respect, uh, this can then lead to improving policies when someone sees that a neighboring country is doing something better than they are. So I guess overall, you could say that we are a specialized think tank slash support center for parliamentarians who want to improve um, sexual and reproductive health and rights in Europe and also across the world. This very uh, exhaustively uh, demonstrates uh, the, the large range of activities uh, that you cover And perhaps in one or two points, uh, what would you say is uh, the most notable achievements that you have reached with EPF? Thanks. I would say maybe two main achievements I'm very proud of. One is that now we're seeing that there's a political understanding that sexual and reproductive health and rights needs funding. For a long time, funding for SRHR was stagnating. But now with the Generation Equality Forum, we see that $40 billion has been pledged by, by different uh, actors. And that's a huge step forward, especially when you consider that around the world, many women don't have access to even the basics, such as family planning. So that's really a, a big uh, improvement. A second achievement, I would say, is um, making access to contraception an issue once more in Europe. For many years, people thought that access to contraception in Europe was something resolved many decades ago. But then when we did the contraception atlas and we showed that some countries were performing better than others, we saw that there was a whole range of policy initiatives that were adopted in reaction to that, which then improved access to contraception in many different countries. Without a doubt, this leaves us in excellent hands to address an issue which clearly has no secret uh, to you. Perhaps uh, moving to the recent developments on the gender equality agenda, we had the gender equality forum that you also mentioned, aiming for permanent acceleration in inequality through serious investment and commitment worldwide, but on a European level, uh, we also saw the European Parliament recently adopting a position on sexual and reproductive rights, which addresses the full range of SRHR and highlights the importance of uh, accessing all these uh, these essential uh, services. The SND rapporteur uh, and MEP Pedra Fred Matisch himself, when presenting the report, called it no less than historic day. He expressed how he is, uh, to use his own words, proud that the majority of our house is recognizing that in the 21st century, we must no longer treat women as second-class citizens, uh, but respect their feelings and freedoms and make sure that all women across Europe deserve access to healthcare. As you've been following the dossier quite closely yourself, what is your personal assessment of this? And in other words, uh, why does this report on the situation of sexual and reproductive health and rights in the EU constitutes such an important milestone in EU history? Well, the Matic report is crucial for three main reasons. First, it is the first time that the European Parliament has adopted a report specifically on sexual reproductive health and rights in almost 20 years. The last report on this issue dates back to 2002, and that was the Van Lenke report. A previous attempt to uh, have such a report in 2013 with Edith Estrella failed due to uh, anti-gender mobilization. And so this is the first time in almost 20 years that we see that the European Parliament clearly has a majority for sexual reproductive health and rights, a very clear majority, and also the rest of the European Union institutions in order to promote sexual reproductive health and rights. Secondly, I would say that it's important because the Matic report is important because sexual and reproductive health and rights have been 
hugely challenged and politicized recently. I mean, we saw just events of last week in Hungary concerning L the LGBT situation. And then there's the constant deterioration of abortion rights and women's rights in Poland for the past you know, years now. So I think this is really an important uh, signal to show that the European Union is in favor of these rights and uh, wishes to see a stop in the backsliding of, um, of these human rights. And then third point is that this report is a genuine lifeline to the millions of Europeans whose rights and, uh, and dignity are compromised because they don't have access to sexual and reproductive health and rights. This report finally is, is, is a strong signal that the European Union is looking out for them and is in favor of their rights and their freedoms in terms of sexuality and, and uh, reproductive freedom. And uh, the adoption of this report has certainly been anything but an easy process. So what made it so challenging to pass it through the vote of the European Assembly? Um, the adoption of the Matic report was particularly challenging because a small group of actors banded together to stop its progress. These are known as the anti-gender uh, movement, which oppose sexual reproductive health and rights, but also LGBT issues, anything with the word gender, such as GBV laws or gender studies or the Istanbul Convention, and even some aspects of children's rights. It's the same group of actors that were successful in defeating the Estrella report in 2013. So it's, I would say it's important to understand this movement and also to see through the mirage that they have created around their identities and their objectives. So first, very far from being small local Christian groups scattered, scattered across Europe coming together to on this punctual issue, these are in fact globally interconnected religious extremists. So I think we need to be very clear about this and we know that they're operating from a common playbook entitled Restoring the Natural Order, where they're trying to limit progress in these areas of human rights. Also, more importantly, they are connected to the US Christian right and several actors in the Russian Federation close to the Kremlin. Secondly, very far from representing active citizens who were mobilizing against the Matic report, we see that those petitions that were circulating and spammed many members of the European Parliament on the Matic report. Those are in fact the result of very sophisticated astroturfing operations were essentially fake grassroots movements which hide their original sponsors. A third point to keep in mind is that instead of representing the interests of mainstream people of a certain religious faith, what we see is that those who are organizing against the Matic report represent fringe and extremist religious movements, which are in, in fact very often in contradiction or in opposition to the mainstream religious hierarchy that they claim to be in favor of. I think that's another thing to keep in mind. And then also, finally, far from being apolitical or neutral actors, what we see is that many of the anti-gender actors are very close to, and in fact, in bed with the emergent far and alt-right political parties that we're seeing across Europe. And in some cases, we see that people who were involved in anti-gender activism in NGOs then become elected representatives for alt-right or far-right political parties. So I think understanding all of this and disrobing the anti-gender movement for what it was helped contribute to an understanding of what was this mobilization around the Matic report and then helped also make sure that people were able to contextualize it in their own political actions. You very well uh, demonstrate uh, the, the level of uh, political dynamics uh, that have been going on and uh, the extremely high level of uh, external uh, and heavy 
heavy pressure. But uh, in that sense, uh, it is even more admirable the, that uh, that this report is breaking new ground. But uh, should you express a wish for for the report to have gone a bit further, what would would it have been? So, in other words, to what extent do you think it could? have gone a bit further? Yes, that's an excellent question. I think it could have been a bit more bold in asserting abortion rights, but at the same time, okay, different political compromises are required in in such a setting, but ideally that would have been good. Also, um, perhaps this can be the subject for subsequent work in the European Parliament, but is to take a look at a, a more closer look at those movements which are undermining sexual and reproductive health and rights, and how these are then interconnected with movements against the European project as such, and also undermining human rights, liberal democracy, and um, and fundamental values in the European Union. These are all part of the same continuum of actors, which this report didn't go into. But I think if, if we're going to look at it further, this is something that we need to, to explore for, uh, as well. Perhaps this also brings me to link up uh, to the work that you have been doing in your research and in relation to some of the points uh, that you've you've already made uh, just before. As we know, anti-feminist, anti-gender, anti-LGBT and all sorts of other anti-movements have been aggressively jeopardizing uh, gender equality advancements, especially when it comes to opposition to LGBTI rights, but also issues related to sexual identity, rights and health, such as contraception, abortion and comprehensive sexuality education. EPF namely published the recent report on anti-gender movements identifying their significant funding alongside earlier eye-opening reports on their main strategies, their scope, and their sometimes slightly unexpected composition through unlikely alliances. What have been your main observations uh, in this particular regard? Thank you. We've uh, released three reports on the subject, and I would say if I can sum up the the main points that that emerge in all three of the reports is, first of all, that we should not underestimate the scale of the the challenge that we're facing. Uh, We're not dealing with the old religious networks or uh, lobbies of the past. The anti-gender movement has rejuvenated over the past few years so that they have a new generation of very well-educated new young leaders who are multilingual, have good degrees. In short, they can they can blend in with all of the rest of us uh, on Place Lux uh, in terms of their professional capacities. Secondly, they have evolved to away from using overtly religious arguments and have now hijacked the language of human rights. So we're fighting the battle at a different level. A third point is that we're not just dealing with a normative program anymore, so that this movement is not just aiming to uh, shape laws around contraception, abortion, or LGBT rights. Added to this, there's an overtly political agenda, and that agenda is to access power or preserve power, and in some cases, also money. I mean, a very good example of this is what's happened just recently in in Hungary, where um, the whole drama around LGBT uh, rights and their recent uh, legislative proposals has very little to do with actual LGBT rights in the country, but it is more of a provocation by the Prime Minister Viktor Orban in order to secure domestic support in order to then maintain kleptocratic regime in place. So I think that's what we need to understand that uh, about how SRHR now being manipulated by certain autocratic leaders. And then perhaps maybe a final point I want to say about um, about the reports that, that we've written is that, is that we can win against this movement. The Matic report is a very good example of how it is that progressive forces organize to win. And some of the ingredients in, in, in order to win are, are quite basic. We need to understand what is this new anti-gender movement? 
who are their leaders, their strategies, their tactics. Once we understand this, we can better prepare for when they mobilize against human rights. And then also, we need to shine the light on them. Uh, once they are exposed, then we are better able to do our work. And what we found is that when we shine the light on them, they tend to scatter away. They don't like uh, people focusing on what they are and what they're doing and what they wish to accomplish. Perhaps also because your last report more particularly focuses uh, on the funding uh, on uh, this type of, uh, of movement. So what would be, let's say, the most uh, striking uh, elements that you could find out thanks to, thanks to this research? So we did uh, our most recent report entitled Tip of the Iceberg. We take a look at, we try to assemble together what we have as information about the funding behind the anti-gender movement in Europe. As far as I know, it's the first time that anyone's tried to do this. Some of the main things that we found is that there's three geographic origins for this funding. One of them is the United States, which accounts for about $80 million over the past 10 years from 2009 to 18. Next uh, source is the Russian Federation and specifically two oligarchs accounting for $188 million. The biggest source, however, is the European Union itself or the Europe itself, which accounts for over $430 million. So in total, we have we can account that at least $700 million went into this anti-gender movement over the past 10 years. We can already understand the scale of the problem that we're dealing with when we can put a number to it. Secondly, this is not a foreign problem. The United States and Russian Federation are actors here, or at least American and Russian actors are, are important, but it is first of all a European problem. And when we take a look at where does the money from Europe come from, we see that it comes from the normal sources of where money comes from. Uh, social and economic elites, so that there's businesses involved in supporting this movement. And if you take a look at um, the alt-right and far-right political parties uh, in all different countries, you can see close business connections with national social and economic elites. We also have some of the wealthiest families in Europe uh, supporting this anti-gender movement. And we also have uh, public funding, surprisingly, going into this. And not just from countries like Poland or Hungary, where, I mean, unfortunately, we can expect that. But there's proper EU funding going into this movement. There's funding from the European Parliament to a whole Christian political party who has organized several activities which are which are against human rights, such as gay conversion uh, therapy sessions. There's member state funding from local and regional authorities, in many cases going to these actors without the intention of specifically supporting them on their anti-human rights issues. But this shows that there needs to be more scrutiny done in where does funding go to. So I think already this shows, this provides a certain number of avenues that decision makers can take in order to limit or stem the flow of funds to this movement. Because, I mean, it would be a pity that Europe is in large part funding its own undermining by different actors. You slightly already touched upon it, but uh, based on the, on this uh, very specific knowledge, what should be the main lessons that uh, progressive actors uh, should draw? Yes, some of the main lessons that progressive actors should draw um, are that take a look at the funding uh, and specifically scrutinize the funding and where is it going? Secondly, we need to take a look also at some of the um, loopholes that we have in the functioning of our own democracy, especially as regards to engagement with non-state actors or NGOs. 
what's happened over the past 10 years in Europe is that we have a whole generation of NGOs that have emerged, which do not adhere to the basic fundamentals of human rights and democracy. Now, this is something new, and we don't have mechanisms for dealing with this. For example, many of them are registered on the EU Transparency Register. Does that make sense when they don't adhere to the very fundamental values of the European Union? At the same time, there's no rule that says they can't. So I think we need to revise a little bit the functioning of our own institutions to take into account the fact that now we have a whole category of actors which is working to undermine the European project that we have set for ourselves. Absolutely. And perhaps also as a follow-up to the last question, because very much uh, the, the issue of, uh, of gender equality and more particularly in the context of uh, anti-gender movements is extremely polarizing. So how can progressive actors make sure that they build positive narrative around this issue uh, to effectively safeguard SIHR in Europe, but also beyond? I mean, I would say that we need to have a more proactive agenda uh, in terms of SRHR that goes beyond safeguarding, but that goes really into better anchoring the, the situation legally in policy and in funding across, across the European Union. So that even across the European Union, there's a lot to be done uh, on access to contraception, cervical cancer prevention, and modernizing abortion laws. So I think already really doing that would be one thing. I think this already brings us to the end of, uh, of our FIPS talks. Um, and what we can gather from today is that each of us uh, has a right to bodily autonomy and should therefore have the power to make our own choices about our bodies and to have those choices supported by everyone around us and by our society at large. Real sustained progress largely depends on uprooting gender inequality and all forms of discrimination and transforming the social and economic structures that maintain them. In this, all progressive forces, but also men, must become true allies. Many more uh, must commit to stepping away from the patterns of privilege and dominance that profoundly undercut bodily autonomy and move towards ways of living that are more fair, harmonious and benefiting us all. Uh, and all of us must take uh, action to challenge discrimination wherever and whenever we encounter it. Complacency equals uh, complicity. Our communities and countries can flourish only when individuals uh, have the power to make decisions about their bodies and to chart their own futures. So let us therefore claim the rights for each individual to make decisions about their body and enjoy the freedom of informed uh, choices. All of us want this. All of us should have this. It is at the core of our humanity. And we should never lose sight of how much we depend on it for everyone. So from the bottom of my heart, a big thanks for your valuable contribution, Neil. And once again, congratulations on the very precious work that you are conducting. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.